0: Wayne Kalf is headed for Ushuaia, Argentina. He's riding a Triumph Tiger Rally, an adventure motorcycle, because that's the point of Wayne's trip, to find some adventure. To get off the beaten track, explore areas other than the tourist route, and find some challenges, like the Trampoline of Death, fabled to be one of the most dangerous roads in South America. Now, at this point, Wayne is riding with two other people that he's met along the way, and as they make their way towards the Trampoline of Death, They find the route blocked by landslides. After doing some more searching, Wayne found another route, and this was to be an adventure. This route didn't show up on the others' GPSs, only on Wayne's. This alternate route forced the three riders high up into the mountains of Colombia, sort of off the map, into what Wayne describes as the toughest, most difficult riding he's ever done. But what he didn't expect, what he couldn't have imagined from that thin line displayed on the GPS— Was that this route would take him straight into hostile territory. Wayne's first clue would be when he was stopped and held at gunpoint by FARC guerrillas. A dangerous, scary encounter that they were lucky to escape from, yet, only a while later in the trip, he's caught in some violent, deadly protests in Peru. And what's fascinating in Wayne's story, aside from these events themselves, is how Wayne used the same tactics no matter how stressful the situation. And those tactics, they worked. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Simonica. Simon. Zed Simon, Simon Paybe. Bill Bragoon. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elsa yeah. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. S-R-E-S product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, CyclePump.com. It's wind pressure that powers the Motobreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets, Motobreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Uh,
1: My name is Wayne Kauf. I am from Pender Island, British Columbia, and I am retired. Um, I'm actually an American who married a Canadian 27 years ago, and we bought a property on Pender Island in 2004 for our future retirement home in 2019. At the end of it, I retired, and in May of 2020, she retired, and then we sold our house in Chicago and we moved to Pender Island.
0: Wayne, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you so much. Well, you're on a motorcycle trip right now.
1: And where are you? Uh, Currently, I'm in Santiago, Chile. Um, I left Pender Island on August 15th for what was supposed to be a six-month journey to Ushuaia. It's turning into a seven- to eight-month journey at this point. But uh, taking a rest break in Santiago while we wait for another rider to uh, show up so we can continue our journey.
0: You've had a a couple of rough patches on this trip, so to speak. You had one where I think you had to deal with a protest that was going on. There was people killed. And you also ran into FARC soldiers. How are you feeling at this point?
1: I'm feeling pretty good. Um, you You mentioned the protests in Peru. And we were in Puno, which is the area in Peru where 17 people were killed one day. We were there at that time. That was pretty scary, people dying. And we were kind of in the middle of all of that. And we finally made it out of Peru and we let out a long sigh of relief. But the encounter with the FARC gorillas, um, it didn't really scare me or bother me too much. And I think it was, I didn't realize what kind of trouble we might really be in. So I feel fine about it now. I'm, uh, it's all in the past and I'm looking you know, forward to the rest of my trip, but uh, it was a very interesting experience.
0: Well, how do you get on this trip? What, what is this trip all about anyway?
1: Well, you know, like, like lots of other adventure travelers, I, you know, I, back in 2009, when I started riding motorcycles again, I used to ride, you know, of course, when I was younger, then I got married and had kids and stopped riding for a couple of decades. But when I turned 50, I decided I wanted to ride again. And, and uh, 2009, I got my Honda Shadow that I bought for my brother-in-law. And then I watched Long Way Round. And I went, oh, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to ride around the world on my motorcycle, but I'm still married. I have a wife, I have kids, and while I'm retired, I just can't go off and leave them at home for three years, five years, whatever it is. So I decided that I'm going to do one big adventure, and that's going to be to go from Alaska down to Ushuaia, like many other travelers before me. Uh, Wasn't able to do the Alaska portion because COVID wouldn't allow me to get into Alaska from Canada. So I went up the Arctic Circle on the Dempster Highway, Arctic Circle sign, took my picture there and thought, okay, here's a great starting point. That was two years ago. And then this past August 15th, I said, okay, I'm going to complete the trip. And I took off and headed for Ushuaia.
0: And how long was that trip supposed to be?
1: Well, initially, I was supposed to be six months. I figured I had it all mapped out and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to see. And uh, but some mechanical issues along the way caused us to be stuck in Lima for a while and in Quito for a while. Um, plus, a couple of trips back home. I uh, actually had a a dog that I had to put down. And so I went home for that. Um, and so, you know, those trips and some mechanical issues have have caused the trip to. Extend out to seven or eight months. Um, my plan is to get to Ushuaia by the end of February and then spend a couple of weeks going either back up to Buenos Aires or to Santiago and fly me and the bike home.
0: You mentioned when you're 50, you got back on the bike. And, and, and your story, as you know, is a common story. A lot of people do that. They, they stop riding while they have kids. But you got on the Honda Shadow and that was your idea of riding. You, and you mentioned seeing Long Way Round, just like a, yeah. such an inspirational film. I'm always impressed by how many people have been sort of woken up by that. But what was it about that film or or that style riding that sort of took you over the Honda Shadow, the Honda Shadow being it's a great bike for the street? Why, Why all of a sudden, like, what was it about that that really caught you? Well, I think more than anything, it was about going to
1: places that you couldn't go on a Honda Shadow. So it was about the dirt roads and the mountains. It was about meeting people in remote places. It was... Uh just the the true sense of adventure. It's one thing to hop on a cruiser and go on down the highway with your highway pegs and uh you know music blasting. It's a total different thing to be in a remote area of the world meeting new people. And to me, there's just this element of excitement about that and about what Charlie and Ewan did that I thought I that is something I would really like to take a stab
0: at. Hence why the adventure motorcycle market is the fastest growing segment in the motorcycle industry still. You know, exactly. and, and, you know it, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And, and I certainly resonate with, with that. You yeah. started out your adventure on what? What are you riding?
1: I'm riding a Triumph Tiger Rally Pro 2020. Uh, it's actually my third Tiger. Uh, when I first got into adventure motorcycling, I had a Tiger 800 XC. I was a 2012. Then I moved up to the Tiger Explorer, the 1200 which I took to the Dempster highway. That was a fantastic motorcycle, but it was big and heavy and on dirt and gravel with a motorcycle that size, when she falls over and takes a nap, it's hard for me to pick it up. I'm Mm -hmm. 69 years old and, and it just didn't, it it was too big for me. So when, uh, Triumph came out with their new rally pros, the 900s in 2020, you know, a much lighter motorcycle, uh, better handling in the dirt, more features, riding modes, all of that. I went, okay, this is the one I need to get. It's 130 or 140 pounds lighter than my Explorer was. And when this one falls over, I
0: can pick it up. Yeah. And now is this a solo adventure?
1: It started out as a solo adventure. I I prefer solo travel um, because I can get up in the morning when I want. I can stop and eat when I want. If I come to a Y on the road, I can choose to go right or left. I don't have to consult anybody. And I quit. I can quit when I want. So I, I always prefer that. And I've, I've ridden in groups before and with other people. And some of those experiences were not pleasant because of who I was riding with. Um, with that said, I rode solo all the way from Pender Island to Bogota, Colombia, but then I ran into uh, some gentlemen there, also on motorcycles, and one of them was a longtime friend on Facebook. I'd never met him personally, um, but now I did. I met him at, at the hotel in Bogota, uh, and he and his group of riders, they went a different way through Colombia, and I went my own way. And then we um, we hooked back up in Armenia, Colombia, and since then, he and I have ridden together the rest of the way, and it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure. My wife... Likes the fact that I'm traveling with somebody instead of alone. It makes her feel more comfortable. Um, and he's. we're just a real good fit riding together. But it started solo and now it's not.
0: So you, you sort of bump into each other, which was probably the, one of the best ways to meet meet up and ride with somebody and actually become a, a sort of a partnership of riding because you've already, you, or at least you can assess each other without the commitment of starting out on a trip, knowing that you're going to ride together. You know what I mean? Like So yeah. um, it's probably a, an easier thing that you've done now.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we've felt each other out and, and, uh, we both have similar styles, tastes, needs, desires, and it's just been, uh, it's been a really good partnership. And I'm, I'm really glad that I, I ran into him. Who's the other rider? Uh, His name is Dave Wood. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's on a 1250 GS. Um, and you know, we trade barbs back and forth about which bike is better. Um, but, and mine's had more mechanical problems than his has. So, you know, I'm the one taking the brunt of it, but, uh, yeah. Dave Wood, he's, uh, he's from Ohio originally. He's actually homeless now. He's been on the road for a year on his motorcycle
0: and he doesn't know when he'll stop. Houseless. Yes. Yep. <laughs> Not homeless. Houseless. Not homeless. <laughs> yeah, his we're... home is his bike. Right, right. We want to be clear about that. So you're, yeah. you're, so you're riding with somebody else now. And um, when, you, when you got to Peru, were you with Dave? Yes. Yeah. Mm, I see. So maybe we, and, should, we should start there. So w- first of all, where were you going to and what did you come upon? In Peru, yeah,
1: yeah, so we wanted to go to Machu Picchu, uh, so we we entered Peru from Ecuador, we went down to Lima. From there, we both went home for Christmas to spend time with our families and then came back on January first. From there, we wanted to do the you know the, the touristy things. we wanted to go to Machu Picchu, we wanted to go to Lake Titicaca, but then the protests broke out, and they were trying to evacuate tourists from Machu Picchu, so we decided. To skip that for now, maybe I'll fly back some point in the future.
0: Well, hang
1: on. Talk about those protests. What is that all about for those who don't know? Okay. So on December 7th, I believe it was, the former president of Peru was going to be impeached by Peru's Congress. And so he tried to disband the Congress. And he was then arrested and put in jail. And he was a president that came from the rural areas in the east, eastern part of Peru, where Machu Picchu and Lake Titicaca are. And those people loved him and voted him in. Uh, he's now been arrested. He's in jail. His vice president has uh, been promoted to the presidency. And the people in eastern Peru are livid that he was arrested. And they are protesting. And people are dying. And it's gotten worse and worse and worse since we left Peru. Um, we actually got out on January 11th into Chile. And the next day they closed the border going from Chile back into Peru. You couldn't enter Peru uh, at that point because the protests had gotten so bad. Mm. Wow.
0: And now, did you know this also before you came out to your first roadblock?
1: We did. We knew that there were protests, but we were asking locals, you know, if we go this route, if we go to Puno, you know, will there be any roadblocks? No, no, no. You'll be fine. Well, sure enough, we ran into three roadblocks that day. The first one, they let us through, no problem. One guy was holding a whip in his hand as we went by. Uh, The second one, they were having a meeting in the middle of the road, a guy with a loudspeaker. They told us to turn off our bikes. And then I called one guy over and I said, hey, there's a little grassy path here to the right. Can we just take that and go around? He said, sure. So we did. And as soon as we did, people started yelling at us. And I just put up a peace sign and said, hey, we're cool, guys. So we got through that one. The next one, they were not going to let us through. Describe this as you ride up. What does it look like? Well, so you got a massive amount of people across the road, rocks, furniture, fires, everything is blocking the road. And I probably had a I speak Spanish better than than Dave does. And I probably had a 20-minute conversation with four or five of the protesters. I said, we need to go to Puno to our hotel. You know, this is the only way we can go, and, and we're tranquilo, tranquilo. You know, we're we're calm, and and finally, uh, they said, okay, we're going to let you through. You have to go around over here. We had to go down through a ditch and around, and they opened up uh, a, a, an avenue for us. But when you go through, you have to hold your fist in the air, showing solidarity solidarity with the protesters, and that's what we did. We went down this ditch and up through another ditch to get on the other side of the roadblock and then just held up our fists as we rode away. Um, But it was, uh, again, I wasn't really bothered at that point. I was just having a calm conversation. I I knew why they were protesting and they didn't have a beef with us, right? And we didn't have a beef with them. We weren't part of that fight. And it just, you know, with a smile and being friendly and talking calmly,
0: you can get your th- your way through any of these situations. It must have been high stress, though, as you come up to this roadblock where the, all the fires are burning, the people are standing around. Clearly, you're not very welcome there. And you, behind you, you've got two other roadblocks that you've already made it through. Uh, do you yeah. sort of feel like you're just getting in deeper and deeper?
1: Yeah, particularly on this last one, I, I was convinced there for quite a while that um, they weren't going to let us through. But that meant we had to go back through the other roadblock to find another way out. And I didn't think they were going to let us back through. So what are we going to do? Camp alongside the road until you know they disband and then we ride through and we don't like riding at night. So yeah, it was a bit nerve-wracking. And what was most nerve-wracking about, for me anyway, was that they might not let us through. And then what am I going to do? How am I going to get to my hotel in Puno? Mm. Um, But we got through and, uh, and then I was just worried the rest of that day, are we going to run into any more? And we didn't. Fortunately, we got to Puno, got into our hotel. And then the next day, massive protests in the square, one block from our hotel, they actually barricaded our hotel. So we couldn't leave. And uh, we ate our meals at the hotel and uh, we couldn't go outside. Um, And that was the day 17 people died.
0: And what are you seeing? Are you, are you standing, looking out the windows?
1: Yeah, uh, we, we saw people marching by groups, and there were different indigenous groups. These are all, you know, the indigenous poor, really, from eastern Peru. Um, what's interesting about it is, you know, their livelihood is tourism. Yet they were doing, <laughs> they were having these protests and stopping tourism, right? So their livelihood was going down the drain at the same time. But yeah, these just different indigenous groups, and, and I'm talking um, old people, young people, women, uh, in dresses in the traditional Andes garb. They were all protesting that day and marching. Um, we actually did get out before they blockaded our hotel. I went out for a little walk and I saw this massive humanity in the square and I started to videotape. And one guy that was marching looked at me and pointed and said, don't do that. And the guy next to me said, yeah, put your phone away. And then he knocked the phone out of somebody else's hand who was also recording. So I went, okay. I'm going back
0: to the hotel. That's it. Mm, yeah. And the people getting killed. Why are people getting killed?
1: Well, the people that got killed stormed the airport in um, Haleaka? Haleaka. I can't it. It's a town north of Puno in the Puno district. That's where their international airport was. And they stormed the airport and the police uh, killed 17 of them. And there was actually 18 killed because the next day a police officer was burned to death in his car. Um, So, so we were just, we were stuck there for three days. Uh, They told us, don't try to leave on Monday. It's going to be really bad. So we stayed till Tuesday. Um, And then we left early in the morning so we could avoid. And we still got stopped a couple of different times that we just rode through and it was fine. Till we got to the coast and we stayed in a town called Talca. And uh, we stayed there one night and then we were getting ready to leave the next morning. And the guy at the hotel desk said, you can't go. There's protests on the Pan-America Highway uh, by the airport, you're, there's no way through. So, and then he showed us on a map, you know, if you go this route, you can probably go. And this was the most harrowing experience for us because we went through roadblocks burning. They turned us away at a couple of spots. And then we said, frontera, frontera, which is in Spanish, that's that's the border, right? And then they said, okay, go down this road, but go slowly. And we did. We finally got to this one roadblock and kind of the boss came over he shook our hands we they started taking photos with us um there's fires burning everywhere and he shakes our hands and he says go with god go with peace and we we rode through and we waved at people gave them the the fist sign and then we finally got to the border the next day they closed the border Mm. and you were already through the border yeah we were already we were into chile by that point but that scared me more than anything. That day where it just, fires were burning everything. You could see huge plumes of smoke out by the airport. And I thought, we're just not getting out of Peru. But we did. We eventually got out and I just let out this huge sigh of relief once we crossed the border into Chile, because
0: it's really calm and peaceful here and I'm happy. <laughs> and, and so what was your feeling while, while you're riding through it that day? I was scared.
1: Uh, Dave wasn't. Dave was really calm. You know, and I made him lead the way. I usually led the way to these blockades, but I made him lead the way on this last day. And he was just calm. He just talked to people. And, and I just wanted to go back to the hotel yeah. and stay for a few days until it all calmed down. He said, no, let's go. We can make this. And we did. So thank God for him because I was I was scared. But if you had stayed at the hotel,
0: would you have been safe there?
1: Yeah, we would have been fine at the hotel. These all of these protests were out on the main roads. They were at the airports. They're on the Pan America Highway. At least in in uh, Talca, uh, Tacna, I think it's Tacna. At least in this town, um, uh, they weren't protesting in the city. They were just doing it out on the streets. But in Puno, you know, the day before or the two days before, they were they were massing at the square, a block from our hotel, and it was it was pretty scary there too. But uh, yeah, I think we would have been safe. But Dave said, no, I think if we can get through a couple roadblocks here and get to the Pan America south of where the roadblocks are by the airport, then we can make it out of here. And we did. And I'm, I'm grateful that he convinced me to do that.
0: What, what if you weren't so calm when you went out? Because you, you said you spent a long time sort of talking, I would consider it negotiating, with these people who are, who are running the protest and they finally decide that they will, they will allow you to go through. What if you weren't so calm?
1: I think if we weren't, they would have just absolutely refused. And and I call it negotiating as well, because that's exactly what I was doing. And then in my work life, I was a negotiator. And so, you know, I was just calmly negotiating with them and telling them, this is all we want. This is what we need. We we don't, you know, if this isn't our fight. And uh, if I had amped up and my voice had gotten loud, and if I would waved my hands and things like that, it probably wouldn't have turned out very well. I don't think we would have been harmed, but we certainly would have been allowed to pass.
0: Now, do you, did you use any sort of tactics when you're talking with them? Like, in other words, saying, you know, we're tourists, you don't want this to look bad on you, that sort of thing? Was that part of your negotiation?
1: Tourista, for sure. Um, we didn't say we don't want it to look bad on you, but we absolutely said we're touristas. Soy de Canada, soy de los Estados Unidos. That means I'm from Canada, I'm from the United States. Um, tranquilo, we're calm, you know, and we would just talk in a calm voice. Um, and that calmed them down too, right? So they were agitated and, and they were mad and, um, they're protesting, but us speaking in a, in a soft voice, us telling them it we're just tourists, it calmed them down and it, it just made the
0: situation so much less tense. Like you could see them physically calm down as you're, as you're talking to them that way.
1: Yeah. And then they would show the peace sign and take photos with us.
0: So that's really good. And this is something you've done before in negotiating for business? Well,
1: I was, I was a real estate broker for 20 plus years. I managed over 400 agents in Chicago. And so I taught negotiation classes for real estate. So, um, Mm. but you know, in, in negotiations, you try and create a win-win situation for both parties. And so the win for us is getting through the roadblock. The win for them is that, you know, we're not going to, to cause them any problems. We just, you know, want to pass along and and get to our next
0: destination. So that's all we were trying to do is create that win-win for both of us. You don't really have much to offer these people when you're negotiating with them, though, other than the fact of bad publicity. And I don't, I don't know if you'd want to say that.
1: Yeah, no, we don't. Uh, but they, they look favorably on tourists. As I said earlier, you know, one of their main sources of income is tourism, you know? So mm-hmm. we're tourists and they don't want that bad mark. Right. They, they, they want us to be there and spend money and and that sort of thing. So, and, and they realized we just, we didn't have a beef with them and they didn't have a beef with us. Right. So, um, but they let us through.
0: Thank God. If you were to do it over again, would you do this whole same thing again? Or would you have turned around to the first roadblock? Knowing what you know now. I mean, aside from the fact that you got through safely this time, because often I always think of this as like, like my example is always a minefield. You can walk through a minefield and, and some people will make it. Doesn't mean it's safe.
1: So if I was traveling with Dave, I would do it again. If I was by myself, I'd go back to the hotel. Right. I just, I didn't have confidence that I was going to be allowed to leave. And, you know, guys are they're carrying weapons that and not, not guns, but they're carrying whips and, you know, what was it, bolos where you put a rock in it. I think, you know, um, you know, and they've got branches that they're piling on, on to fires and tires they're putting on fires. And it just it was a scary situation. And if I was doing it my own, I, I think I would have turned around and gone back to the hotel. I'm a little bit of a chicken when it comes to that. But if if knowing what I know now
0: and if I had Dave with me, I'd do it again. So having, putting Dave out front, your friend out first, which by the way, Clinton Smout from our Rider Skills Program would love to hear this. <laughs> you, you let yes, your friend he does. Go, you <laughs> let your friend <laughs> go first. I think that's great. But what yeah. was it, what did Dave do for you? Because you're, you're the better speaker of Spanish. You, you, you've you got the handle on the language. What does he, for, him out front do for you? He's not afraid. Mm-hmm. So
1: he's, you know, he's talking to me. We've got our centers connected. We're talking constantly. I'm saying, Dave, I want to go back to the hotel. says, Wayne, listen, no, you know, we can do this. This is, so he calmed me down more than anything. Um, and he says, we can do this. We're not a, we're not a threat to them. You know, let's just, let's just see if we can get through. Let's just see. And he kept pushing that. And I kept going along. Otherwise I would have to turn around by myself and go back. And we're a team right now. So, um, I think it was his calmness. or his confidence in saying, "We we can do this. We can we can get through these. We got through them. You talked us through them a few days ago. We can get through this again."
0: And uh, he he just he helped me through it. Fear is is very important for us. It can be very useful, and it's there for a reason to protect us. So, yep. do you feel that your fear was unfounded? No, I don't. Um, well, that's a tough question because you know
1: have any Americans or Canadians been killed in these protests? No. Was the threat to me of bodily harm, something real? I felt like it was, but if you step back and look at it, it probably wasn't, but I felt like I could be harmed that day. Um, and so I didn't want to be hurt. Right. I, I, I just wanted to be safe. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like um, my fear was – was uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? It was it was substantiated by what was going on around us. Um, but in retrospect, they didn't mean us any harm, and, and I probably shouldn't have been as afraid as I was.
0: Dave, I think you mentioned, is from Ohio. Yeah. What did he know that you didn't know riding out front? Uh, I mean, you're following him because – he's giving you a sense of security. He's certainly telling you it's going to be okay, but what is he backing that up with?
1: Uh, not any real knowledge. Uh, he's a bit of a risk taker. So like if we're going down the road and, uh, you know, he sees a sidewalk that nobody's walking on, he'll just ride his bike up on the sidewalk and then jump it off the other side. That's not something I do. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so he's just kind of fearless about how he rides and how he approaches life. And, um, that's what I needed that day was somebody who was fearless.
0: The thing with danger is it's different for all of us. You know, we all have to assess it as we go. But so what I see that, you know, with you telling me this story is that you were sort of pulled into Dave's definition of acceptable danger. And, and do you yep. feel that that's, that's okay? Is that zone okay for you? Or is it okay overall? Yeah, it is okay.
1: Um, because I'd gotten to know him quite well by that point. Um, we'd been traveling together for weeks. And uh, if he was confident, he felt we could do this. And there were two of us. So um, we had the strength and numbers. Um, yeah, I felt totally comfortable with with him leading the way and, and sharing his confidence that we were going to get to the border today.
0: After going through all these roadblocks and, and, and really having the fears that you did, and, and rightfully so, from these protests going on, how does that make you think about Peru now? Because do you, do you, you dealt with the people one-on-one there, the actual protesters. So I think you probably got at least some sort of feeling for the type of people you're dealing with. But does it change or has it maybe shaped the way you view Peru?
1: Um, not the people and not the protests. I understand 100% what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, I was disappointed in northern Peru um, in that It's all desert and it's, there's a lot of garbage. I mean, there's just garbage lining the Pan America highway for hundreds of miles and it's all desert and it's hot and there was nothing really, it wasn't very pretty. Um, Once we got into the mountains in Peru, it was gorgeous. We went to the White Mountains, absolutely stunning. Lima was a beautiful city. So the protests and the people have not changed my views of Peru at all. Mm. I, I get where they're coming from. Uh, some of the landscape in Peru has changed my, my uh, thinking on whether or not I want to go back.
0: You mean that, like, for instance, that stretch of highway with all the garbage yeah. on it, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Yeah. So that has nothing to do with the protests, obviously. That's just nope. something that you, you notice going in. Yeah. How did you run into the FARC guerrillas? Where, where do we start with that? going to take just a quick break. I've got three things I want to tell you about. Well, when we come back, we've got more to the story. Stay with us. The absolute best cold weather socks that I've ever tried, which are, by the way, the official sock of Adventure Rider Radio, and that's a position that We just gave them because I'm so enamored with their socks. Of course, it's Pearly's Possum Socks. These socks are made with merino wool and possum fur, and they do a blend and a knit that fits your feet, but more importantly is the performance. The performance is amazing. It wicks away sweat. It keeps your feet warm and dry, and it's kind of like a fuzzy little cushion they're in. I wear them in the winter. I wear them in the summer. These things are made for riding. Literally, they're made for riding, And they're made by riders just like you and I, the owners of Pearly's Possum Socks. The website is pearlyspossumsocks.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Pearlyspossumsocks.com. You won't regret getting a pair of these. There's nothing better than sitting down and reading a quality book of a motorcycle adventure. I mean, there's not only things to learn, but it's the whole thrill of being that sort of armchair adventure along with somebody else's ride. Road Dog Publication specializes in great books for motorcyclists. RoadDogPub.com is the website. They've got a slew of books already published. You can get these books anywhere, but you can also get them from directly from their website. And they've got new books coming out all the time. RoadDogPub.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. RoadDogPub.com. Any good mechanic will tell you quality tools make all the difference, not only in getting the job done, but getting the job done right and doing a quality job. And the parallel I'm working here is with your foot pegs. The stock foot pegs, they're great to set your feet on, but that's about it. If you're a serious rider, you want serious foot pegs like IMS Products makes. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, and they've been making parts since 1976 for motorcycles, and they take everything they've learned in all those years and put them into the adventure motorcycle foot pegs they make now for us. The reason they do that is because they're riders, just like you and I. They know what quality is. The website is IMSProducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSProducts.com. How did you run into the FARC guerrillas? Where, where do we start with that? Well, so um, we're back in Colombia. So this this is before you riding through the protests. That's right. Okay, That's go right. ahead.
1: Yeah. So as I said earlier, you know, Dave and I met in Bogota uh, and I went my own way and he went his own way with his riding partners. Um, but then we hooked up again in um, Armenia, Colombia, and we started riding together as a group and there were four of us all together. Uh, we got as far as Cali and then one of the members broke off because he had relatives in Cali. Um, and then the three of us, me, Dave, and then Steve, another American, the three of us decided to travel together for a while. And what we wanted to do was we wanted to ride the trampoline of death, uh, this famous road in Southern Colombia. uh, and it's supposed to be one of the most dangerous roads, which by the way, it wasn't, um. So we wanted to go from Cali to San Agustin, which was across the Andes Mountains, and then down to Makoa, and then the Trampolina Desk. So it was going to be a two- or three-day ride. So we left Cali that morning with the intent of arriving in San Agustin. It was going to be a six- to seven-hour ride. And unfortunately, uh, Colombia had torrential downpours this past spring. Every single day that we were on the road— we had these huge thunderstorms, many of them were at night, so we were already in our hotel rooms by the time they hit. But just torrential rainstorms. and what happens in the mountains with torrential da- rainstorms is you get landslides. And we're talking major landslides. Now and almost every day of our travel through Colombia, we would get to one or two sites where we would have to wait in a line of cars. Uh, because one section of the road was, or one lane of the road was blocked because of a landslide. So they would, that that oncoming traffic come while we were stopped and they'd let us go. Almost every day, we ran into one, two, three times each day, sometimes where we had to stop because of a landslide, but we always got through it, no problems. But we left Cali, we were heading down to Popayan, uh, where we would then start heading east towards San Agustin. And there was a, a, a landslide. The road was blocked. They said it would be blocked. We got up near the front. They said it would be blocked for several hours at a minimum and maybe even a day or two. So we went, oh, okay. We turned around. We went back to a restaurant. We pulled out our maps and we said, okay, so here's a route through the mountains that can take us to a town called La Plata. Um, And then from La Plata, we can make it down to the trampoline of death. So we changed our route. We went through the mountains. It was beautiful, twisty roads. Turned into some construction, a lot of mud, but about halfway to La Plata, we had stopped for a drink and uh, a pickup truck pulled up, a couple of uh, Colombians in it. They asked us where we were going. We told them we're going to La Plata and they said, oh, that road is closed. There's a landslide there. I'm, oh, no. So they said, but it's going to be open by this evening, you know, like six or seven o'clock. Well, it was getting close to dark by that point. We don't like to ride in the dark. Um. And so we thought, okay, we'll go to an intermediate uh, town, which is a small town called Insa, and we'll spend the night there, and the next morning we'll take off and we'll go to La Plata, and then who knows how far we'll make it after that. So we had a pleasant evening in Inza. Next morning we take off, we get almost to La Plata, and the road is closed. And the road had been cleared of the landslide, but the mountainside was so unstable that they wouldn't allow anybody through because it could just come crashing down on you as you went by. So so again, we had to turn around, we went back. Now, the two guys I ride was riding with, both on uh, GSs, both had the BMW GPSs, and they could not find a route through the mountains to get us around this roadblock. I actually use Osmant on my Kyocera Android, which I love as my GPS program, and I found a route. Oh, hang on, say that again. You- Osmand, O S M A N D. Uh it's uh it's like uh me. It's, you know, one of those types of apps mm-hmm. and I it's downloaded on my uh, my Android and I use that as my GPS. You don't it, the the Android has this fantastic GPS chip in it so I don't need cell service. Um, and I'm able to navigate anywhere in the world practically using this mapping system with a with an Android. Um but they couldn't find it on their GPSs, and I found this route. So this route was going to take us back to, we had to go back to a town called Guadualejo, and it was going to take us through the mountains to another town called Nataga. And from Nataga, then we could pop on down to La Plata, and everything would be great. So we get on this road, and it's beautiful. It's it's a single-lane dirt there were some water crossings, uh, not big ones, just, you know, little creeks going across a lot of mud and dirt. It was, you know, pretty challenging on big bikes, fully loaded, but beautiful. We're going into these, these mountains in Colombia, and we've got the river down below and, and going through these small villages. And it was it was an absolutely stunning ride until we rounded a corner and I was in the lead because my GPS had a track for us. And there's two guys standing in the road with walkie talkies, all dressed in black, and they put their hands up and they say, "Stop."
0: Mm. Now, do you know what you're riding into at this point? Do you have any idea? I have no clue. No I have clue. no clue. What's your first impression? What do you think it is? Uh, my first impression
1: is okay. These guys, they're they're farmers. They're this is their town. They need some help. I don't know. I, I didn't know what to think. Mm. Um, the walkie talkies kind of bothered me a little bit. So the the lead. Guy wearing a black ball cap and he's got a walkie-talk in his hand. He asked me where we're going. I say we're going to La Plata. Where am I from? I said, Soy de Canada. He asked me if we speak Spanish. I said, no, my friends don't. I speak it a little bit. And so these two guys were there. And then all of a sudden, we are surrounded by six other individuals, two of them on full in full camouflage uniforms with machine guns and machetes. And they have a fork. Patch on their left shoulder. Now, I had thought that FARC was long gone; like 2019 was the last they were ever seen. And for those who don't know, FARC is the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia People's Army, and we were um, we were surrounded by FARC.
0: Now, now, just to let me jump in there, because th- this is, FARC was established back in uh, the 60s. And has yeah. there's been so many things like FARC has been responsible for. It's it's been financed by a lot of criminal activity because it's um it started off as a poor person's army and um, yep. uh, they've been they've been responsible for many thousands of kidnappings, for instance, for for ransom, etc. They did sign a ceasefire in 2016, but from what I understand, that there's there's a small sort of group of them still continuing. But I thought it was. I thought it was done. Like, people don't talk about it anymore. You don't hear about this anymore. So that that must have really startled you to see that patch. Yeah, it did. And I didn't know much about FARC. Dave did. I I just, I don't follow that kind
1: of stuff. And I just didn't know much about it. But the submachine guns bothered me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're surrounded. And then kind of this lead guy comes up. And they want to go through our luggage. And I just said, no, mis ropas, mis cosas. These are my things, my clothes. And they kind of left me alone, but they got back to Steve and they made him open up everything, and they went through
0: everything. Steve is another rider with you. Yeah. How many riders are there?
1: There's three altogether: me, Dave, and Steve. Mm. And Steve's in the rear, and he's on a a F800. Um, And so they went through all of his belongings, but they kind of left me alone. I have a drone, which is worth a thousand bucks. I'm glad they didn't look through that. But then they wanted money, and this this lead guy, he was kind of a a hard ass, and and uh, he said tres millones. So he was asking for three million pesos, which is the equivalent of six hundred dollars. He wanted one million pesos for each motorcycle to pass. And um, I didn't have it. i I had like a hundred pesos or twenty five bucks, something like that. And I gave that to them, and he handed it right back to me.
0: Uh, hang on, would Wayne, you don't travel with extra money on you. You don't travel with hidden money? I do. okay. so so you're but are you aware at this point? that they have have financed themselves on kidnappings? Nope. I see. Had no idea. So you're arguing about money here and and it's this could turn ugly. Yeah. I
1: you know, I just it was in a in a in a belt that I had packed away in my gear. It wasn't on my person. So I just pulled out what I had on my person. I said, here, you know, this is what I got. Right. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't know. I didn't know enough about FARC at that point. I've learned a lot more since then. Um so while all of this is going on, he's asking for money. They're going through our bags. Dave is saying in my ear, let's just turn around and go back. And I said, you know, we want to turn around and go back. So I started, went to start my bike up and they took my keys. Um, and I, I, I said in my headset to Dave and Steve, they just took my keys, guys. Now I'm starting to get a little scared. All right. Like what the heck is going to go on now? Um, meanwhile, there's, there's. One of them is, I don't know, fifty feet up the road from us on a walkie-talkie, constantly talking to somebody who we think is their boss, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we later learned that this was a a, a huge area for cocaine trafficking in Colombia. We didn't know that going in, but we learned later that it was. Um, and so that's what we're guessing is why they were there. Um so this goes on for about thirty minutes. At one point, you know they give me my keys back, and then, Dave says into my headset, Wayne, he says, let's turn around because there's just going to be somebody further up the road that is going to stop us again. And I said, okay. So I said, to the guy will turn around. I went to start my bike up again and he took my keys a second time. So now, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do at this point. Anyway, they continue talking on the walkie talkie. And eventually the guy says, okay, you can go. And I said, really, we can go. And so Dave said, I don't want to go. I don't want to. I want to go back. There's somebody waiting for us. And I they said, they're not going to let us turn around. So this took about 30 minutes in total. We left. We were scared to death for the next hour or so, thinking somebody's going to pop out and come at us. Um, what we we think the reason that they didn't want us to turn around is they were afraid we were going to go back down the mountain and tell somebody. Right. Oh, right. And they knew that if we kept going to Nataga, there was nothing between where we were with with their encounter and Nataga. It was rugged terrain, mud, deep sand, rocks. It was was the most challenging ride I've ever been on from that point forward. And it took us like five hours to get to Nataga. We hadn't eaten anything, um, but we finally made it to Nataga. We let out a sigh of relief and it didn't really dawn on us probably until the next day
0: how close of an encounter we actually had. Yeah, wow that is just incredible now your whole ride after they let you go you must have just been like sweating buckets
1: we were we were and there was a small motorcycle that came up uh past us one guy had a, a walkie-talkie on uh, are these these guys are part of it and then and w- me and steve both fell several times on that road it was really rough
0: um i was wondering steve if you're would, pushing yourself
1: well we weren't Pushing too hard. We were taking it slow, but both Steve and I lost our rear brakes. They overheated. My uh, fork seals started leaking. It was a rough road. We were just beating the hell out of our bikes. But Steve went down. I heard it in the headset. Dave went back to help him. But these two guys had stopped and they started talking to me. Well, and I thought, oh, my God, here it goes again. And all they wanted to do is get pictures of me on the bike, right? Um but yeah, we were sweating bullets for, for quite a while there until we got to Nataga. And once we got to Nataga, we could kind of let, our, let out a sigh of relief and say, okay, we made it. Um, and then, you know, the next day we're in La Plata and I'm getting my bike washed because it got filthy. And, and I'm talking to a guy there, he's with the government. And I told him of our experience and he just genuflected and put his head down and said, you are so lucky.
0: Mm. And we had no idea. Yeah, and then it probably really hit you at that point. It did.
1: Yeah, for several days there we just kept reflecting back on it and going, "Oh my
0: god, guys, did that really happen to us?" Mm. And we made it out of that. And this is one of those stories, isn't it, where where you you made it, so everything was fine, but boy, it could have turned out different and and here you you're refusing to pay this guy this ransom, <laughs> you know, and when you look back on it, you think of like how how fickle that decision was.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. It's because I just didn't understand the gravity of the situation. I I just didn't understand it. And, uh, I'd heard of FARC, but I hadn't heard much about them. I just wasn't familiar enough. Uh, I didn't know that they had been funded uh, by kidnappings. I, I didn't know any of that. I was just ignorant of all of it. Mm. And so I just, I just pulled out my wallet and said, here's what I have. I, I think Jim, I actually probably even forgot I had that money in my belt. Right. It wasn't even. You wasn't even thinking about that at that
0: time. Did you think you're just fending off a bribe at that point? I mean, you're already nervous, though. I mean, you you must have understood at least some of it.
1: Yeah, I did think I was fending off a bribe, and you know, all you hear so many reports about motorcyclists traveling through South through Latin America uh, when police pull them over and they want a bribe, and and almost everybody you listen to says just don't do it, don't give them the money, Mm -hmm. right? And and so part of that was going through my mind as well, and I kept saying I don't have it, I don't have it. Finally, I pulled what money I did have out and I gave it to them and they just handed it right back to me. Um, now they never asked Dave or Steve for their money. They were just asking me.
0: Why do you think that was?
1: Well, I was the lead writer. I was the one speaking Spanish with them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe they asked them. I don't think they did though. Mm-hmm.
0: But they didn't bother your, your gear. They didn't go through your, your bags, they, but they- Didn't touch it. And I, they went and through I the just, other guys.
1: Yeah. And I, I just said to them, no, it's misropos, mis, It's miscosas. No, no. You know, I just kind of pat my bag saying, no, don't, there's nothing here. Don't worry about it. And they left me alone. Um, but I wasn't aggressive. I wasn't antagonistic. I wasn't raising my voice. I kept saying, tranquilo, tranquilo, we're calm, we're calm, right? And, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, their boss, whoever they were talking to up on the mountain said, listen, guys, it's not worth it. You got a Canadian and two Americans on motorcyclists here. Just let them go, right? And I think that's that's how it all ended. Mm. You know, they were concerned that maybe we were journalists. Uh, we were there to report on the cocaine trade, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had my camera running and I didn't know it was. Um, I have a 360 camera. And unfortunately, I had it on regular GoPro settings. So it wasn't recording in 360. And as the encounter started, I thought, oh, I'm going to get this on on, on video. And I reached up. So it's about a minute and a half into my video. I reach up to turn it on. And I look and I go, oh, it's already running. So then I turned it off. And as soon as I did, they saw me do that and said, camera off. And I said, yeah, no, it's off. It's off. It's off. Uh. Right. And when they did let us go, they said, no cameras. We said, no, no cameras. Because all of us are traveling with GoPros on our helmets I've got the 360, I've got a drone, we're all traveling with cameras and they made it very clear we were not to be using those.
0: And they just trusted you though, at that point.
1: They did. Yep. Once they let us go, they trusted that we were going to keep going, that we weren't going to report them and, and that we were not a threat to them.
0: Looking back, what do you learn from that? (sighs) Probably do a little bit more
1: research on areas that you should avoid in some of these countries. Um, you know, we were we were adventure riders. We're going to go explore the mountains in Colombia. You know, we'd heard about, you know, problems with the uh, cartels in northern Mexico and, you know, Colombia used to have this, you know, be known for all their cocaine trade and everything else, but that was all a long time ago. We didn't really think that there was still going to be an issue with it. And I think I think, you know, doing a bit more research Uh, particularly in remote areas, as to whether or not that's a safe place to be would probably be beneficial next time.
0: Mm -hmm. It's tough to know what you don't know, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, you're going Um, into a place, you have no reason to to think that there's a problem. So it's tough to know to do some research to try and figure out if it's going to be safe.
1: Yeah, and it was a beautiful road. It was just gorgeous, right? We're, We're going in through these mountains with the river valley below us and through these little... And we were just having the time of our lives. It was such a great ride mm-hmm. until we came around that corner.
0: Wow. And you, you've got some video of it anyway, showing, you know, you getting stopped before you shut the camera yes. off. Right. Yes. Yeah, uh, And you yeah. put, you have a YouTube channel, you put that on.
1: Yeah, I haven't yet. I'm working on the final touches of that particular video. I hope in the next 48 hours or so to get it up on my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. which by the way is Wayne's World Tour. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to have the, the whole video of that day from Cali
0: to La Plata. Uh, that video is going to be up pretty soon. Well, we'll put a link in in the show notes to that video for sure. So, um, Wayne, what does this do for you for, for travel? Is this, um, just an incredible story, which it is an incredible story. Does it change the way you're going to look at things from here on in? And especially because of after this, then you went in and ran into the protest. Do the two yeah. things combined change the way you're looking at travel?
1: No, they really didn't. Um, I, my wife and I are talking about going to Vietnam this fall and running motorcycles. And we want to explore the world. Uh, and we're not going to stop traveling. You know, you're going to run into situations every once in a while that will be challenging. These have not deterred me at all. Um, Have I learned something? Yes. Would I try and do it differently next time? Yes. Uh, But, you know, I'm continuing my journey. I can't wait to go down to Patagonia in the next couple of weeks and make it to Ushuaia and explore the rest of Chile and Argentina. I'm super excited about the rest of this trip. And uh, these experiences have not deterred me one bit.
0: Well, I'm glad you're safe, and I'm glad all your friends are safe, Wayne. You have a great trip, and shoot us an email when you get to Uswaya.
1: Will do, Jim. Thanks so much for having
0: me on. Thank you. All right. we speaking with Wayne Kauf while he's on his trip to Ushuaia, Argentina. We've got some photos from Wayne as well as links to his YouTube channel in the show notes. His YouTube channel is called Wayne's World Tour. He's got a great video of the FARC encounter as well as the protests. Well worth checking out. All that in the show notes for this episode on our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin, and of course you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of it by listening to the show. Now, another way you can be a part of it is we build this show on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support, so drop by our website adventureriderradio.com, click on support, and look what we have there. Anything ten dollars or more gets you some Adventure Rider Radio stickers. Anything fifty dollars or more gets you a shout out on our Raw Show. That's the other show that we do once per month. You need to subscribe separately. You'll find it everywhere podcasts are found. Of course, you'll find that also at our website. We would also really appreciate it if you'd look at our patron option and consider becoming a patron supporter. And there's some perks to that as well. Anyway, all on the website of and click on support. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. And I'll talk to you next week. I'm Heather Ellis and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.